Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Week one of the NFL season's in the books. We already started week two last night with the Cleveland Browns and the Cincinnati Bengals. And I thought it was about time to put out a podcast after week one. Mark Schofield and I didn't get around to doing a quick game post week one, especially with the weight that a lot of people had for the All-22 film. So they were all kind of in angst with over that. So I thought I would do, well, I'll call it a one dozen unfiltered takes uh, from the RSP cast. Now, these are a dozen thoughts that I have based on players that I watched during the NFL opening week, as well as some college players that I've scouted recently. And so I'm going to deliver some of that for you. dozen takes, and then I'm out of here. First take is really about evaluation in general, because I see this all the time when I look at the work of others, especially folks starting out. Um, you know, whether it's fantasy analysts or scouts or um, you know football writers when they're when they're evaluating the skill of a player, and I think that. You know, certainly I've made my share of mistakes. I'm going to go into one player that could turn out to be that for sure um, a little bit later. But where I've had difference-making evaluations, evaluations that have stood out from the crowd and have had a, the player had a massive amount of success, is that I operate consistently with this base principle as basically the question that I use as a framework for everything that I grade. And that's, did the player perform a technique, a concept, or movement in a way that put himself or his teammates in a position to make a positive play? Did they, whatever it is that they did on the field, did they put themselves in a position for a positive play themselves or a teammate? If it's a blocker, did he set up a defender in such a way that the quarterback or the ball carrier could have made a positive play? doesn't matter whether they did or not. It's whether they could have. Did the running back when he was, you know, running the football, did he make the right decisions up to the point where it wasn't within his control to do anything more. For instance, did on a gap play, did he read the right keys? Did he follow the lead blocker? Did he use the correct pacing and distance behind that blocker to set that up? If he did those things right, but because maybe the defense was able to penetrate and close the gap and close off any other alternate lanes, he may not have produced on that play, but he did everything within his power to set up a positive play that wasn't dependent on other players. These are the types of things that I look at and why I break down players in such small degrees of criteria because it helps me see the difference between what the player did well and what the team did well. And it also allows me to separate the player's production from his performance. Because I think we have a real problem 
when it comes to analysis at times where it's just easy for us to say things like player A outplayed player B without really separating the context between what happened with the offensive line or his teammates, what happened in context of the game. You know, I look at a guy like James Conner, say, versus Benny Snell this past week. And it's easy to see for me that when you separate the player from what his teammates did, that James Conner did what he could to make plays, but they just weren't available there. Now, that doesn't mean that he would deserve a higher grade than Benny Snell, who did what he could to make positive plays, and his teammates also created positive opportunities for him to earn production because one earned production, the other didn't. But you can't honestly, or let's say put it this way, you can't say with certainty or with truth in terms of information in front of you that one outplayed the other. One outproduced the other but it doesn't make the more productive one the more talented player. We've seen that bear out over and over again when we evaluate players in the college game. Garrison Hurst wasn't a better running back than Terrell Davis. He outproduced Terrell Davis. You know, so those are types of things that if you can, you know, you could say Troy Davis out of Iowa State, who was a big time running back in college with massive production wasn't a better running back than Matt Forte who oftentimes played behind offensive lines that were so at such a disadvantage athletically that Matt Forte had a lot of negative games in terms of production so it's important that when you begin to look at players that you do what you can to ask yourself this question. Did the player perform in a way that put himself or his teammates in a position to make a positive play? I know that, you know, I can't go into detail with every single thing on how that works with my framework, but you can look at the Rookie Scouting Portfolio publication, read the criteria, look at the glossary that I have that defines everything, go through the process of each chapter and you'll see that I'm literally that that question I just posed really is the framework for everything that I do so it's worthwhile just to keep that in mind especially as I go through the list of other players here in this unfiltered dozen let's lead off with Clyde Edwards Hilaire man he had a fantastically productive debut against the Houston Texans and when we look at that game, I actually just put out an all-22 review of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire's um, game at the Rookie Scouting Portfolio website on my YouTube channel, Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room. And it's about a 17-minute analysis that shows, you know, the things that we liked about Edwards-Hilaire. You know, I think that everybody likes is that short area quickness, his footwork, a lot of his decision-making, either between the tackles or as a, a runner in space, the potential that he has as a receiver, even though I didn't really profile that so much, I guess, but we know that's there. Um, 
And when you look at him, you know, some of the runs he made, there's a run that Daniel Jeremiah talked about on Twitter. And I retweeted that and added my own flavor of analysis to it because Daniel Jeremiah brought up, showed the two safeties and how high they were playing and retreating after the snap because they wanted to, they didn't want Patrick Mahomes to throw the ball over their heads and how that that was going to allow Clyde Edwards Hilaire basically to eat all season long. And I couldn't agree more with um, Daniel Jeremiah on that thought that that's going to happen a lot. Okay, it's going to create lighter boxes for Clyde Edwards Hilaire to, op- to have room to operate. And because the Chiefs can spread the field with guys like Kelsey and Hill and Watkins and Nicole Hardman and Demarcus Robinson, what that does is it does force defenses to to allow lighter boxes, six, seven man fronts where Edwards Hilaire can, you, you know, basically run draw plays or run plays that, um, you know, really give him some great matchups in terms of blockers versus defenders where they get a matchup advantage and then he can play hide and go seek in that line with his quickness and his ability to press and cut. So all that's there. There is a particular play, and my flavor to that play that Daniel Jeremiah brought up is that he made an absolutely beautiful move in the hole where he sets up a, a def- an unblocked defender to the outside with a little stick as he's just getting tight to a block to his inside and then dips back inside. And that stick to the outside man forced the fi- number 55, the linebacker, to basically fall to his knees. And then the dip and that stick outside also forced Zach Cunningham, number 41, the linebacker on that play, to actually um, jump away from the containment or assignment that he had with one crease and then actually dive over towards the crease or slide over to the crease where Hilaire made that stick move. And that opened that crease that he the linebacker was guarding for Hilaire to basically cut back inside and get a bigger game. So that was like that was like something I've seen Emmett Smith do or Ladanian Tomlinson do in their primes. You know, I mean, and I've often said that Clyde Edwards Hilaire was an Emmett Smith starter kit. Now the reason I say a starter kit is because it's missing some advanced um, tools or features. You know, and he's missing some advanced features to his game. Um, and those advanced features are power. And you're going to see, and you've probably already seen it. I think there's a metric out. I don't know who posted it. I saw it on the Football Guys Newswire where it basically said that Clyde Edwards Hilaire averaged over two yards um, per carry and contact or something to that late. Two yards after contact in that game. That's such a deceptive stat unbelievably deceptive stat and it's and in the context of what that game showed if someone makes that argument for you they do not understand the context behind that stat with the film and as chase stewart has always said over at um you know football perspective metrics are the purpose of metrics is to be able to have something that is a reflection, a true reflection of what's happening on the field. If it's not a true reflection of what's happening on the field, then it's 
most likely not a worthwhile metric. And so when you look at Clyde Edwards Hilaire's game, what I noticed is that he really didn't break a lot of meaningful tackles. Now, you have to understand what a meaningful tackle is because that sounds very subjective. And you're going to get a lot of data guys really upset when I say, you know, when someone says something like, he didn't break a lot of meaningful tackles. Well, that's subjective. How do you objectify? Well, it's easy. You objectify. You know what you do? You define it. So let's define it for those people. Okay. First of all, let's break down a tackle three ways. And you can combine them to actually make four or five or six ways of talking about. But the basic three ways are a reach. That's where a defender just reaches their arm out and tries to grab the ball carrier, you know, or two arms and tries to grab them, but they don't get a chance to be able to interlock their hands or hold on to the defense, hold on to the ball carrier. They just are reaching and the defender is able to work through that. A reach is the weakest form of a tackle attempt. Usually the players who win with reaches are the largest men against the smallest men. You know, defensive linemen, defensive tackles who can get an arm on, wrap that defender and pull him down. And that doesn't happen very often. So reaches are the easiest tackles to break. Right now, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, when you watch his tape, most of the plays that he broke through were reaches. Sometimes they were even the weakest form of reaches that weren't, they didn't even get a grasp on the jersey or on a body part and clamp on. What they ended up getting was basically a form of a, a patty cake slap, you know, basically on the leg or on the arm or on the back, uh, you know, on their back or on the back shoulder, somewhere where they couldn't even get a grip on the guy. There's a run that people are looking at and were really impressed by when they just saw it live in action and that's a run that he ran that he took off left tackle and he split two defenders I think an outside linebacker and a defensive end and they both reached for him from each side kind of bookending at the same time and it looked like he ran right through both their reaches and while that's people will tout that as you know um, contact balance really they reached for him high he had his their their heads were actually behind his back when they made the reach, so they had no leverage when he was running through there and he was running downhill through their arms. Most running backs of any value would break that tackle. That's expected. It wasn't a, a, a sign of real power there. That was the lowest that was one of the lowest categories of power. After that, Another kind of tackle is a wrap, and that's where a defender can get both arms around a body part and hold on to that body part. And if you can break through wraps, that's pretty good. You know, a guy who breaks through a lot of wraps is Alvin Kamara. He's very good at slipping through wraps, lifting his leg through wraps. Um, and that's a, that's a, that to me is the beginning of you have skill to be able to break tackles when you can run through wraps. Now, some wraps are easier to run through than others, you know, um, and it depends on the defender. And, and you should classify each of these tackle attempts also not only by the tackle attempt type, but also by the defender delivering that tackle. Is it a, is it a lineman? Is it a linebacker? Or is it a defensive back? And you could probably even break that down between cornerbacks and safeties because some safeties are excellent tacklers and, and they're meant to be excellent tacklers, whereas cornerbacks, you can kind of go light on the tackling oftentimes. So you have those tiers. 
And then the tear also is a hit. You know, if someone delivers a hit, a hit, a meaningful hit where that actually jars someone and knocks them away from their path or off their path. Doesn't necessarily have to be off balance, but it has to be, you know, if you hit them from the side, is that person going to move sideways from the impact of your collision with them? You know, a meaningful hit. Um, and usually hits go along with wraps. You know, you can usually, if you can hit and wrap at the same time, that's probably the most effective form of tackle, tackling. Um, now, there's degrees of that as well, but if we're going to go from the basic level of that, those three from, you know, easiest to hardest. And when you look to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire's game on last Thursday night, he didn't break through any wraps, or at least to his upper body or to his waist, to his to his ankles. I think he had a couple tackles, attempts to his ankles where he ran through a wrap. Otherwise, most of them were reaches. If he was hit, he was knocked sideways immediately and fell to the ground, or he was hit head on, he was knocked backwards. The only play where he actually moved forward through a hit was a play where he ran 10 yards downfield untouched into the Texan safety and the safety still was able to knock him to a standstill and lift up Hilaire's leg and Edwards Hilaire was able to move forward but you know why because his teammate I believe it was number 77 one of the linemen literally knocked Edwards Hilaire forward through the grasp of the safety after that happened so at this point, if we're just going to talk based on his NFL debut, we cannot conclude that Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has power or great contact balance or that his yards after contact is a worthwhile stat for that game. Because in the context of what we saw, he really didn't face um, what you would call effective contact to stop him that none of the contact would be classified as effective so with that said the the third thing that was interesting about that game was the red zone work because when you look at that red zone work and i broke this down in this um, nfl lens rsp film room um, piece that i did you're going to see that he did not read his keys on at least three of those runs and he should have scored on three runs in that game um based on if he did what he was supposed to do. He did not follow his blockers. He did not read where the linebackers, the leverage of the linebackers and the linemen and make the appropriate cutback. And the cutback was built in based on backside blocks that were there by Travis Kelsey or even a lead block by Kelsey on one play. Um, he didn't set those up. And if he had, he would have walked in. And if you don't believe me, because certainly, you know, look, I've never played football. I've never coached football. I've never been an NFL scout, you know. And, you know, I know most of you trust me because you've been following the show for a while. And I've been doing this for a while. And I have a track record. But if you don't believe me, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire's running back coach came out tonight, on, or earlier Thursday night, and literally said that the blame for those red zone carries was squarely on Edwards Hilaire and that if he had followed his keys as they instructed their backs in the classroom, he would have had he would have scored on those plays. So I went back. I was ready to put out a film room without those plays. 
And I went back and looked at those plays, and I was like, damn, if he wasn't right. So, um, you know, Edwards Hilaire, when you look at it in total, you're a fantasy player, and you're like, well, what should I think about him? Because you didn't recommend him as a top five guy, and he was probably one of the top backs, if not one of the, if not the top fantasy back in week one. True, he was. And I'm still going to stand by my um, take that Clyde Edwards Hilaire will be probably somewhere in the 12 to 15 range as a running back, but drafting him as a top five guy thinking that he'll be a top five producer this year, I still think is a stretch because in order to do that, he's going to have to prove that he can produce in the red zone or in the green zone inside the five. And with as many chances as that he had and he didn't score, that's a problem. So are these issues correctable? They are. But, you know, he's a guy known for his vision and decision-making. And he didn't read his keys on all those plays? And he really didn't. So is it easily correctable? I would think so, because he really is known as a good decision maker. Um, So I think he's going to get another chance, or maybe even another couple of weeks, to show that he can do the right things there and not freelance. But if if he costs the team a possession or two because of that, or puts them in tough situations, you best believe that Andy Reid will go to Darrell Williams or even, um, you know, even Thompson, you know, I bet he would go with either one of those backs in terms of their ability to work in the red zone because both of them have shown red zone skills. So if that doesn't happen and he ends up losing the red zone role, he's going to be a yardage monster, maybe even a PPR option. But you notice that he really didn't have a have any I don't think he had a reception in that game he didn't have a reception in that game all that talk about his receiving ability but you got to understand when you have all those other players and he's the third or fourth or even the fifth option and three of those players are pro bowl caliber talents and you have Patrick Mahomes who basically can work downfield as well as any quarterback in the history of the game at this point how often are you going to be checking down to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire? You know, there may be some games where he has big receptions, reception totals, but I think he's going to be very dependent on, you know, he's going to be very dependent on rushing yardage. And that means he's going to need some touchdowns to really supplement that for him to be that high of a producer. I think he'll be a good producer, which means what, top 12, top 15, top 20. But I, I still can't see him being top five. Um, at this point now maybe he does earn 120 to 150 yards per week and if he does that then yeah he has a shot but I don't believe that's going to happen all right moving on from Cloud Edwards Hilaire let's move on to another backfield that might is obviously my favorite in the NFL right now and that's Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt together on the Cleveland Browns man that might be the best backfield tandem that the Browns ever had. And I'm that includes <laughs> that includes Jim Brown and Bobby Mitchell when they were in the same backfield at times together. Or Jim Brown and Leroy Kelly. Um, you know, though I guess you could probably take Jim Brown and say that, you know, Jim Brown just alone you, you could add any two guys from the Cleveland Browns in history and they wouldn't equal Jim Brown. You could probably argue that, but I'd say Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt come pretty damn close. Chubb looked fantastic tonight. 
There was a specific run that I really loved, which was a counter play in the second half. It was so subtle, and it doesn't even look like it's that big of a deal. But he had a big run off a counter play because right at the exchange point, he slowed down two steps. And the slowdown was so smooth. It wasn't it wasn't that sudden. It was just like it was so seamless. He read the he gauged the lead blocker so seamlessly that he slowed down two steps and then accelerated through the crease. And it didn't it you can barely even tell that he slowed down until you actually just look for it. You don't see that very often, even in the pros when it comes to certain plays where you have pulling um, linemen and young players for sure you don't see that very often because they often rush behind their gap um, their lead blocker and gap plays and as a result they have to slow down and when they have to slow down the defenders already know where they're heading and they have nowhere else to go so they're able to fill the crease and it usually winds up in being a short yardage play because of the fact that the running back was too impatient there but Chubb just Chubb adjusted so flu just so like flawlessly that once he it gave him room to accelerate at the right time and it was just a it was a masterfully masterful run that was so subtle and then the contact balance he had there was a hit to him that was onto his right leg that knocked him a little off balance and the way he was able to move his legs to maintain his balance through the stride it was just superior type of work one of the hardest forms of contact to maintain balance through is when someone hits you hard at the knee or shin or calf from an angle, from an indirect angle, like from the side. That's a very hard hit to stay upright through when you're in stride. If it's a you know not a wrap or a, or a reach, but one where you literally can displace the body part that you hit and that happened in that Bengals game and it, and it, and not only did Chubb work through that but then he gained I think another 15 20 25 yards to the one and I think he scored on that play but they they ruled that it was uh that that it was down at the one fantastic run and then you look at Kareem Hunt and I mean god Kareem Hunt's a Kareem Hunt's arguably a top 5 to top 7 back in this league as well and you know he was he hits creases with authority he has good burst he's shifty he's got power obviously he can catch the football it was fantastic and i think we saw what you know our buddy Dwayne McFarlane over at Pro Football Focus he pointed out during the game um, last night that you know that hunt that basically this whole chubb hunt balance the people worried about chubb is a little overblown in terms of as long as the browns are in their game script of what they want Chubb, you know, in week one had 68% of the, the, the snaps. And when you looked at the game until it's, it got late and a little bit out of hand and, you know, they gave Hunt more touches, you know, Chubb actually dominated on touches. And then the team, the, basically the Bengals got tired out and Hunt was able to eat as well. And it was, you know, a fantastic night for both of them. So I think what you're going to see is, as long as the Browns can stay within 10 points, 10, I'd say 10 to 14 points of the opposition, um, you're going to see Chubb have the majority of touches, even in the passing game. He had a 
He had a nice catch early in the game as well. And it, um, so, but then if this if this is a blowout early and it's a blowout of the Browns early, then Hunt gets the garbage time. And that's fine, you know. But I think you're probably going to see Hunt be as uh, what I've projected, which is probably no better than a running back three. He'll have some big weeks. He'll have some smaller weeks, much smaller weeks. Chubb's going to be the steady factor. Now, will it be enough for him to be a top 15, top 10 back? Um, I think it will be. Um, but the biggest variable all of this is Baker Mayfield. And, you know, I talked about this in um, the top 10 football guys a little bit, and is that Baker Mayfield really hasn't progressed beyond his years at Oklahoma. And a lot of that you can say has to do with that the Browns has had three different coaching staffs. But you can you could use that as an argument, but it doesn't take away from the fact that Baker Mayfield still, those coaching staffs are focused on scheme. And yeah, they worked with him with his footwork a little bit on dropbacks. But the, the main issues with Baker Mayfield have been pinpoint accuracy and managing the pocket and reading the field. And these are all things that he had issues with to certain degrees at Oklahoma when it comes to higher level expectations of play. You know, with what Oklahoma asked him to do, a lot of that wasn't NFL level stuff. That And if you were projecting the more difficult plays that you wouldn't see as often Oklahoma being forced to do with their offense unless they were facing the likes of Georgia who had pro caliber players on defense who could play man-to-man coverage then you didn't see the the flaws and accuracy that he had you know and it was interesting because I kind of got some flack when I talked about his lack of pinpoint accuracy and and actually had a debate or two about that on Twitter but you look at it now and you realize that, again, it's like that whole context with yards after contact. There's a context behind accuracy and how you grade that. And, and it's, it can be problematic from a process point of view. One of the reasons why I haven't scaled my business to have other people do grading for me, and I resisted it for years, I used to have people come to me and go, hey, man, you know, I love your process, and I know some people who might be interested in, from an NFL standpoint, and I'm a programmer, and we could take your process, and we can create a, a database and sell the database with the process in it and try and sell it to NFL teams, and we could go into business together. All you would just need to do is, you know, scale your product. Do you know what I mean by, by scaling? And I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, I used to run um, – you know, I used to be a, a director of quality for a company that was one of the largest um, call center corporations in the world. And we had, you know, over 70 branches. And the work that I did, I, you know, was scaled with, uh, with teams of people doing evaluations. And, you know, that was after I was an operations manager for a while as well. Um, you know, working on the front lines of a lot of that stuff. So, yeah, I kind of understood what it meant to, <laughs> to scale work. And the problems with scaling work when you're doing, you know, evaluating performance is that you have to really be calibrated on specific criteria 
and know that your staff understands what that is and understands what they're seeing and that the and that as things evolve that they can grow at the same pace and rate and that you can be agile and flexible with all that type of growth and oftentimes you don't see that with organizations that do grading with a lot of people and because those people on the front lines they don't get paid a lot um, they're just there to give people numbers just track you know information that's what the data people think just track the information a monkey could do it and i'm not saying that they think that to that degree i'm giving a little bit of hyperbole there but they think it's they they treat it like it's simple even if they know it's not they you know in their their words don't match their actions and as a result these organizations aren't always as agile or um, place as high of a priority on making sure people are calibrated with what they do that they're evolving in their education about the environment that they're evaluating and how things are changing and how to adjust to that it's not they're not as agile as a single person i may not be able to give you grades on every single player i may not be able to give you you know reams of data in terms of um you know every single game played every single snap all of that kind of thing but i can be agile in terms of how i evaluate and continue to learn what to evaluate as the game as i learn more about the game and as the game changes and i bring that up with baker mayfield because the data on baker mayfield is that he was super accurate in college but you know i think the difference is that they had a very rudimentary view of what accuracy was compared to me because i was looking at projecting higher level of accuracy that's in the nfl and trying to and using that to project what baker mayfield was doing you know i would look at a red zone play at oklahoma and see where he placed the ball and while it was catchable and you might even say it was pinpoint because it was at a specific location for that player when it arrived at that player they didn't notice the context of the play where baker mayfield waited two extra beats to throw that ball the receiver slowed down to wait on the ball and as a result of that or he adjusted to wait for the ball and adjusted in a way that allowed the defender to catch up to him because he was waiting at a spot or that because he was had to prolong his break the defender had more time to recover and as a result the recovery speed of those extra steps were the difference between baker mayfield hitting a receiver who was going to have two yards of separation on the defender right immediately out of the break and the defender getting gaining three to four steps as a result of baker mayfield's hesitancy and making a play on the ball so these are con contextual elements that sometimes people miss when it comes to evaluation and so when you see that with grading and just picking up was it complete or not complete well it seems like that's just grunt work but if they don't have the correct context for that grunt work then they're marking it in a way that's not um it's not correct it's not accurate and so i think that was the issue with baker mayfield in some respects is that people don't break it down enough in a way that they can really project it they're not asking did the player perform a technique concept or move in a way that put himself or his teammates in a position to make a positive play and there's degrees of that if baker mayfield 
on the play that I just described, threw the ball as soon as he could because he was anticipating the break the way he should have, then he put his player in a position to make a positive play without any interference from a defender. And that's pro-level work. What he ended up doing was hesitating because he wasn't sure that that player was open and wanted confirmation and put his player in a position so that the defender could make a play on the receiver and it made it a harder play. So, you know, those are things that you kind of have to consider with that. And that's why I asked that question fundamentally with everything. All right, so, and I'm just going to end it on this note because I'm a Browns fan, you guys know that, or at least I'm a conflicted one with the Baltimore Ravens and, you know, and then I seek respite with the uh, Seattle Seahawks over the NFC, um, you know, NFL fairyland, as I call it, because I'm an AFC guy. Um, But I, you know, I enjoy watching the Seahawks too. But listen, I'm so, as a fan, I'm just angry that the Cleveland Browns picked Baker Mayfield because they could have had Lamar Jackson. Imagine Lamar Jackson in that offense, not in that, even, yeah, even in this offense that they have now with Stefanski or in an offense where they hired a guy like Greg Roman or, and, and made an offense that was, you know, like the Baltimore Ravens. They could have done that and have Nick Chubb as their runner, have Chubb and Kareem Hunt as their runners with Lamar Jackson. It would have been insanity to watch that. Or, you know, when they picked Deshaun Kaiser, they could have had Patrick Mahomes. They could have traded up. They could have made an offer for that. Imagine Patrick Mahomes and Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. You know, that's what the Browns could have had right now. And it's so disappointing because they have probably the, they have the best one-two punch is, you know, I think I heard Troy Aikman say as I was trying to, um, as I heard overheard something as I was going on and off the mute, saying that they had the best one-two punch in football, which I think is pretty obvious with those two running backs. But they don't have a quarterback who can win the game for them or at least manage the game so that they doesn't put them in a position to lose. Right now, Baker Mayfield risks them is a risk for them to lose with some of the decisions that he makes. Um, and so until he can develop pocket presence, until he can be a little bit better at reading the field with immediacy um, and with accuracy. I don't think he... All he did was save himself a week or two. I still think Case Keenum could be looming for this team. And to be honest, there's a part of me, as much as I don't want to root against a player, there's a part of me that would like to see the Browns just move on already I'd like to see because I don't think Baker Mayfield has it I will be surprised if he pulls himself out of this and becomes a really good quarterback I think he can be competent in this offense and that may be enough for the Browns to threaten for a playoff spot but I'd prefer to see them draft another quarterback and uh and so we'll see what happens with Mayfield okay number five on this list Josh Jacobs so, you know, if you follow the, the RSP projection series that Dwayne McFarland and I have done for the past few years, and it's one of the more enjoyable things I get to do during the summer. Dwayne is just absolutely great people. Um, 
You know, I love working with him. Smart guy, watches the game, studies the game, you know, also looks at um, the numbers well and has a good feel for, for data. And I'll just tell this quick story. I'm going to tell on myself a little bit. You know, when Dwayne approached me to work at the RSP, you know, one of the first things I did is I had him talk to somebody I knew who is probably the most, one of the most accomplished analytics people in the NFL um, who most people don't know about and no one would publicly know about. Um and he's someone that's he's been an RSP reader since 2007, so I'm just gonna put that out there. Um, and I just asked him, you know, would you have a conversation with Dwayne for me, and just let me know, is this someone that I feel like is going to do, you know, honest research, that they approach the game in a level where they're not just trying to make a provocative point, but they actually understand the game enough and the numbers enough not to just try and reverse engineer things and not un- and basically try to do a lot of correlation, causation arguments and, and stuff that gets attention that but doesn't have the substance that it should, but then argue to the death with it in a political sort of way. And so he agreed to do that with me and, you know, uh, you know, they talked and they had an enjoyable conversation, and and he said to me, "Yeah, Dwayne's going to be just fine. You're you would be he'd be a good match for what you want to do." And so I just wanted to share that because um, there are a lot of people out there that I think intend to do really good work, but may not know the difference um, between good work and and work that could require um, a little bit more fundamental, um, you know, I don't know, a more fundamental fundamentally sound approach. So Dwayne's great. And anyway, he and I debated Josh Jacobs on our show. And, you know, the debate was, you know, over Jacobs catching 60 balls. I had him catching 60 balls since May. You know, he brought up Lynn Bowden. He brought up Jalen Richard, more importantly. And then Lynn Bowden and his draft capital. And, you know, that was something I never really understood about Lynn Bowden and his draft capital being the third-round player because you have to understand something. When you look at his play, his game on film, this was a, a wide receiver, a guy learning the wide receiver position. He wasn't really running a full route tree or even remotely close to one. In an offense that kind of spread things out, often in the slot where he didn't have face a lot of tight coverage, worked a lot of zones, um, in a simple sort of way, and just and while they at Kentucky they praised his intelligence, praised it to the hilt, talking about how if they needed him at quarterback, he was the one guy on their team that they felt like they could move to quarterback and he could do it, which is a high compliment for a college player. And just so happens they needed him last year, and they moved him to quarterback. Now, the type of quarterback that they had him play, they didn't have them throw the ball in, in a really advanced sort of way. He wasn't capable of that. And that's okay. He's not a quarterback. But they had him run the ball a lot. And being one of the best athletes on the field, he had a great deal of success running the football. And boy, was he fun to watch. He's quick, he's fast, he's agile, and he has great contact balance. I mean, this is a guy that I watched run through 
Georgia defensive backs and line, excuse me, defensive linemen and linebackers, certain types of hits that they laid on him, raps that he ran through, head-on collisions, some, you know, indirect shots from defensive linemen and bouncing off them and continuing through, breaking multiple raps and tackles, sometimes like 20th, on the 20th or 25th or even 30th touch of the game for him. Really impressive stuff. And I think that the Raiders saw that and said, we can make him a running back. This guy could be a dynamic running back. And I get why they thought that. But um, I think where they failed is that just because you can run well as a quarterback doesn't mean that you see the field like a running back. Because you can see in the field, you know, Five yards past the line of scrimmage is a lot easier than seeing the field five yards behind the line of scrimmage or seven yards behind the line of scrimmage because that part is the most important part. How blocks develop, how to set up your lead blockers. You're not just scrambling at that point. You know, as a quarterback, you're scrambling or you have simpler forms of runs that don't require as much of a setup. And I think that with Lynn Bowden he didn't have that ability or experience of setting up blockers in the way that he needed to in the NFL. And then on top of that, he didn't have any experience in pass pro. I mean, college football running backs at least learn about protections, learn about you know what their responsibilities are, learn some basic techniques to cut block or stand up block, how to punch, how to get your feet in a stance, um, what slide protections look like, what blitz pickups look like, the rules for certain blitz pickups and adjustments, keys that you should read about linebackers or defensive ends or you know safety blitzes or corner blitzes or slot blitzes. Lynn Bowden had no experience with any of that as a quarterback in terms of what to do as a blocker because he's not blocking as a quarterback. So he gets into camp and he struggled with all of that. He struggled with those aspects of the game, with the receiving game out of the backfield. Those routes are different than, you know, the downfield routes. I mean, there's some similar concepts for sure, but there are some major differences in that that can make them um, a little harder than you might expect. So, you know, that whole thing was a failure for for the Raiders. And I'd say that was on the Raiders as much as it was on Bowden. Um, Bowden got traded to the, the Miami Dolphins. We'll be interested to see what the Dolphins do. I bet they consider him a receiver. I think that was really the right call in terms of what you should make for him. He should be the a developmental Randall Cobb type as opposed to a developmental running back. So I think that's really on the Raiders that they did that. And so I never really bought the Lyndon Bowden hype and maybe he'll develop down the line, but not for the Raiders. And especially when they had Jalen Richard and they had Jacobs, who was such a good um, route runner. And you saw that route running on display this past week against the Carolina Panthers. He had a couple of nice angle routes in that game. Um, you know, did a really good job in terms of setting up the route. And, and he's, a, he's, he always, always, always have had good hands. And last year, they probably felt like he was a little banged up. They didn't want to give him a lot more touches in the passing game, or they didn't want to overtax his responsibilities to the point that he's overthinking on the field and making mistakes. And therefore, let's use our third down back to be a third down back and 
you know, Jalen Richard, we can count on him for what he does, and then we can stair-step Josh Jacobs into a full-time role or a bigger role as his second year. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen here. I think that Jalen Richard can still be an active presence and Josh Jacobs still get 60 catches in the game. So I just wanted to touch about that, touch on that, especially from the scouting context of Lynn Bowden Jr. All right, two backs that were really fun to watch um, this weekend and probably, or last weekend and probably this weekend too, are Joshua Kelly and Jonathan Taylor. Kelly was, I was so glad to see him get opportunities while I'm a big Justin Jackson fan. And even seems like Austin Eckler's a big Justin Jackson fan. Jackson just can't stay healthy. And, and Kelly, man, he's a, He's a big enough dude. You saw his speed against the Bengals um, once he got in the secondary. You saw some good movement and skills to diagnose penetration and spin away from it. Um, he can catch the ball, though we haven't seen a lot of that yet. But I think this guy could be on track to get the Melvin Gordon role by year's end, which means that by year's end, I wonder if Austin Eckler will be as valuable as people thought he would be from a fantasy perspective um, because of the fact that Kelly's going to get his. His power, um, his ability to read defenses and to really work into tight creases is impressive and it spares Eckler that kind of pounding. As much as people talk about Eckler's build, I mean, I saw this a lot on Twitter, showing pictures of his him ripped and how he's doing one-arm pull-ups and all that impressive stuff. You know, I've talked about this in the past. It's like boxing. You know, there are a lot of boxers out there who look like bodybuilders who can't hit worth a shit. Like, from a boxing standpoint, they don't have any power. There are a lot of guys who basically have above average dad bods who can fucking, you know, knock the head off of a statue in terms of the kind of power that they have. Because it's, it's more about timing, it's more about location, it's more about leverage, it's about understanding, you know, all those things and the rhythm of being able to throw a punch. So, and a lot of the most powerful backs actually know how to take the fight to the defender. Ezekiel Elliott, there's a play on my Twitter feed of Ezekiel Elliott against the Rams where he launches himself into the shoulder of a defender. It's one of the best examples of like taking the fight to the defender that I've seen. And after that play, finally someone got asked Elliot what makes him a different back, what makes him a special back. Because I brought this up with even Jamal Charles years ago. And I finally heard a back explain it, and he explained it, and it was perfect. He said, I take the fight to the opponent. I want to hit first. I try to be the initiator of contact because people talk about contact wearing you down and it can hurt you. But if you're the one delivering the blow, you have more control of how much punishment you take and you're delivering more punishment to the defender. And Ezekiel Elliott is one of the best at doing that. The best backs do that. They're the ones to meet the contact first or at least match that contact in the hole. And when you are the first to make contact, you're also the first to have control and make the next move because as the defender's reacting, their body's reacting to that contact, you're now in position to make that next move first. And that's what Ezekiel Elliott does so well. So anyway, Joshua Kelly, it's going to be interesting because I think he has some of that in him. Um, Jonathan Taylor, I know he has that in him. And on top of that, his burst, 
was really fun to watch in that game against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And we're going to get to see a lot of him too. I was pleasantly surprised how much they featured him in the receiving game. They used him a fair bit on screens and he caught passes well. That bodes well because as much as Naeem Hines may have value as a, you know, as a committee back with Taylor, it tells me that they're confident enough Taylor in the passing game that he's not going to be greatly diminished by Naeem Hines's, um, you know, opportunities. You're going to see Taylor get passing game and run game opportunities behind a great offensive line. As long as Phillip Rivers can hold it together, Taylor could have a big year. All right, so let's talk about Hakeem Butler. You know, obviously Hakeem Butler hasn't even been added to a team from what I've seen thus far. He got cut, had a lot, not a lot of people. I'd have, I had about a half dozen people ask me what I thought about that is why didn't he get an opportunity? Most of them kind of just lamented that they they saw a lot of what I saw on tape and they just don't understand it. And, you know, there are also folks who, you know, obviously are just, you know, are kind of like, well, you know, you rated Hakeem Butler so highly, you know, you know, what will you do to reevaluate that? You know, I had, I talked with, um, somebody else I'm close to who was like, I'm going to have to go back and look at what I missed with Kareem Butler, what I, you know, and I'm going to have to reevaluate my process. That's what was said. And, you know, I wrote on Twitter, if you missed it, you know, a lot of you aren't on Twitter and I understand why. Um, I mentioned that uh, I'm not reevaluating my process because I reevaluate my process all the time. And one player rarely is the difference for that. It's usually that there's something about that player that may spawn an idea, but it has to, I have to see it repeatedly with other players or other evaluations that I'm doing. And I may remember it with one player vividly enough that when I see it enough with other things going on, that I'll make the change. But one player isn't going to make a difference for me, especially if I look at Hakeem Butler right now and we haven't seen him play in an NFL game. We haven't seen, we've, there's been some practices, but we haven't seen him play in an NFL game. So we don't know what he does well and doesn't do well with a great deal of accuracy at this point, unless I trust the secondhand information of beat reporters who, you know, I have to say, they're often wrong about what they evaluate in practice because I've watched them study practices at the Senior Bowl and report, and I've read what they've written, and then I've looked at my own notes, or I've watched the, tape, the game tape, and I'm like, I can't trust what that person has to say from that perspective. You know, if they, I can trust what they have to say when they ask questions, when they report what coaches say, or information as a, as a reporter, but as an observer of, of practices, I can't trust a word that, that they say. You know, some things may be right, but I can't tell you what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong unless I follow back behind them each time. So if you can't see what the player's done in the NFL yet, then what are you going to change about it? You're going to just go back and look at your process and, and apply this bias of he must be bad because he got cut. So I'm going to have to look at, look for bad things now. That's a bias that you don't want to have. You know, that's confirmation bias in a sense in terms of how you're going to go back and look. Sometimes you have to accept that there's an unknown there. You know, I had a conversation with Dan Hatman of the Scouting Academy, and we talked about Butler a little bit. 
And Dan brought up the point. He's like, we the, all this tells you really is that the Cardinals didn't draft the right receivers for Cliff Kingsbury's system because they're having trouble getting both their draft picks on the field, Andy Isabella and Hakeem Butler. So they 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 ended up trading for DeAndre Hopkins. So what that should tell you is that the 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 communication between the GM, the scouts, and the coach wasn't clear enough about what they need at the wide receiver position, so much so that they had to trade for a wide receiver who's established to fit into their system. That's all you can really say. And then I would recommend um, Dan Hatman's article on Carson Wentz. Um, and it's basically something titled, I think, I don't care what your evaluation was on Carson Wentz, and you can find it at Inside the Pylon. And it's a terrific piece from a few years back that just basically tells you, you know, it's not whether you were right or wrong, but how you pers- you projected where the player would go and how he would do in a certain s- set of systems, you know, and what he could do. Not so much, you know, and, and I think that that's a very good perspective to have. So when it comes to Hakeem Butler, to me, it's an incomplete grade. Now, for a fantasy player, it's a failure because they're looking at it as I was expecting him to produce and he hasn't produced and he's not even on a team and no team has picked him up yet, which could be mean that maybe he has a reputation as a slow learner, something that I just wouldn't have known because I don't interview players. I don't interview coaches or that he had a reputation off the field or some behavior off the field that was a problem. I have no idea because again, I'm not a private investigator and that's not what I study. Sometimes I'm going to miss on players and sometimes I'm going to miss on them big from a fantasy perspective because I don't have that information. And that leads us to the question of draft capital because people will often say, I had a conversation, I think it was with Davis Maddock briefly. He just mentioned, well, what about draft capital? Don't you use, why wouldn't you use that? It's a very easy heuristic to use um, for that. And the reason is, is that I'm not a sports better. I'm not a gambler. And while I cater to fantasy users, and most of my customers are fantasy players, I'm not going to pander to it. There's a difference between catering and pandering. And maybe pandering is too strong of a word. But I want my work to be rooted in realistic NFL evaluation in terms of like looking at the game for real. And when fantasy players, you can be successful by taking away the high risk, high reward and the low risk, low reward scenarios and cutting off both ends of those ranges so that you get that happy middle with the highest percentage chances of success. And that comes with draft capital because draft capital they say, they say it's a dictator of talent and that it correlates to being a good dictator of talent. That's not really true. I mean, it's a good shorthand way of saying it, I guess, but it's not an accurate one. It's really a good dictator of what teams will do in terms of favoring other players. Because as we've talked about in this show plenty of times, draft capital is nothing more than a risk management process. 
So, you know, a player who's drafted higher most of the time has gone to a high-level program. They've had a high level of production. They have the right amount of prototypes in terms of physical dimensions, height, weight, um, you know, hand size, arm length, and then physical athletic ability, and then maybe certain types of testing and interview and off the field and, and those types of skills, and also their tape. But all those other factors weigh in towards their tape in addition to their tape. So tape isn't even, tape is important, but it's not the only thing. If tape were the only thing, then, you know, then draft capital might matter in terms of ability, you know, if you're just judging ability. But they're also judging players based on how likely are they not only to succeed, it's not so much how likely they are to succeed, but how, how, how do we minimize the likelihood of them failing or minimize us? This is very important. Minimizing us looking as bad as we could if we draft them early and they fail. It's one thing to draft a player who is built like, um, you know, what's a good example? Like Sam Darnold, you know, with the arm talent, with the production, with all the measurables you want, the big time school, the production at the big time school, and draft him early and fail. It's another thing to draft Johnny Manziel, who had all that production, but was small, maybe didn't have the greatest arm in certain circumstances, you know, had the off-field stuff, and have that kind of a risk. Or a Patrick Mahomes versus a Mitchell Trubisky, you know. Lower risk to draft a Mitchell Trubisky versus a Patrick Mahomes on the surface of what people look at in the history of those types of of that position. So as a result, what happens oftentimes is once those players get drafted, they are given more reps in practice with the the expectation that they will develop because they get the earlier contracts. You know, it's not a true competition in an NFL camp most of the time. Very rarely do they have a true competition, which is why it was so unusual that the, and stated as such that Seattle had an open competition with, um, I'm trying to remember the quarterback now, who that Russell Wilson overtook, um, the former Green Bay quarterback, Matt was his first name, Matt Flynn, who, was the, who played for LSU. Matt Flynn, who was a big-time free agent that they added in terms of cost, and then they still um, allowed Russell Wilson to compete um, truly, and that was and they talked about how unusual that was. Reporters did, and he earned that opportunity. Very rarely does that happen, you know. Very rarely does you know. It took James Robinson, the running back, you know, basically, um, you know, Divino Zigbo and Raquel Armstead to get hurt for him to have the opportunity, even though he had a good camp. You know, and they were still ready to get let go of Leonard Fournette, it looked like. You know, in hindsight you can look at it and say they were still looking at that as a as a real possibility and wanted that to happen if they could make it happen. If they didn't want to make it happen, you can best believe that James Robinson would not have gotten the opportunity that he did. So it takes a lot for those types of things to happen, even when they do. So the point being is that when you look at, you know, draft capital, you know, you could say, well, that's why a lot of people who are in the fantasy industry will say, that's why I didn't, you know, want anything to do with them. 
he was older he didn't you know he he had he was drafted in what the fourth or fifth round i think um at that point so just stay away from him he's not worth it and that's fine you know that's play it safe kind of play it by the numbers play it by odds but that's not talent evaluation that's just that's just accounting basically that's just play, you know and i wouldn't say accounting it's just kind of like just playing the odds and you're and you're just looking at the numbers and looking for the safest thing and that's fine if you want to play fantasy football that way good for you i'm not about that you know i want to look at talent i want to understand the nature of talent i want to i want to look strictly what happens on the field and tell you whether or not the guy can be good how they can be good where they have issues are those issues correctable where those issues could be exacerbated in a system and go from that and you know and so as a result of that you know that's why you know some player some people who will you know say i'm staying away from hakeem butler that's going to work out for them but they might also say i'm going to stay away from a patrick mahomes i'm going to stay away from a russell wilson i'm going to stay away from an odell beckham i'm going to stay away from a steve smith jr i'm going to stay away from a nick chubb you know i'm not i'm not even going to think about players who might be valuable as reserves because they're just not even worth my time or i'm not going to stay i'm going to stay away from a lamar jackson you know all those things you know arranging to guys like malcolm brown or or peyton barber you know guys who could give you starter production in the right fit or system because my job is to be inclusive about all the possibilities with players with talent and i don't want to cut off either end of that and judge them as not good enough i could say that you know you could say they're too risky um in terms of if you're just looking for the safe play and i can respect that but you know what i also expect is for you to respect the fact that i'm judging talent and and my judgment judging of talent is different than your judging of odds so that's hakeem butler going from a young guy who's unproven to a guy who's just an absolute stud still even though he wasn't he's not the all-world unbelievable player he once was and that's i can't believe i'm saying detroit lion adrian peterson adrian peterson was he 35 now 34 35 i have also an rsp room um, film room coming out um i believe it will be out you know as of this podcast as well and it's a fantastic film room because you get a chance to see what makes Adrian Peterson special. You know, even without the long speed. The long speed is gone, but man, the the short area burst is still there. The jump cut ability is still there. The hard, the, the footwork, the placement, it's all there. And the vision is unbelievable. And I want to talk about something with Peterson because I've often said that, you know, when it comes to his cutting ability, the reason that he cuts so well is that he has such strong legs when you see him stick his foot in the ground he comes to a complete stop it's almost like and it's with so much force that cut it's almost like watching the earth crack beneath his feet when he hits the ground as hard as he does i'm amazed at how strong his legs and joints must be to be able to do that at this at that age i mean it's it's fantastic 
And the jump cut ability, I mean, you don't see many backs have that kind of spring even now. And of course, he still has that great durability. But the, he lives and dies by jump cuts. And he's had a Hall of Fame career because of jump cuts. you know. But jump cuts are dramatic movements that oftentimes cost you yards. And you're going to see in that tape, if you go and watch it, examples of where he wins with it and where he loses with it. Even in situations where he loses with it, as impressive as they can be, there are a couple plays where you look at it and go, wow, if he could just learn to like, op- not use that, not lean on that, and just kind of like take smaller step, um, smaller step, and or not jump cut and just like open his hips and point the toe and work away, he he'd have some amazing runs. And there's a particular play that I love because there's a play where he tries to cut back and he has a no gainer where he basically tries to cut back but ends up running into backside pursuit at the line of scrimmage. But the idea is great because like in theory on this play, the the way they had it set up from him and shotgun, he reads the field pre-snap and you can see that there are more guys to the left side of him. There's like five guys to the left side of him against, you know, I think maybe four to the right and he had a man-on-man advantage to the right side which was the the play side of the of the run but he tries to cut back behind the back side um defensive back with where those five players were and at first you know in theory you'd look at that and if you were like just going strictly by the academic of football theory and how it might be coached you would say that wasn't a good idea because you know again five on you know the 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 size of the the number of the players in the box he he was cutting into a side where he had a man to man disadvantage but when you watch the play and you think about this sometimes you have to think to yourself why would a hall of fame back do that and sometimes the answer is going to be cuz he made a mistake cuz hall of fame famers can make mistakes too i mean they're not going to be perfect on every play but what you actually see is you see the angles that each of these players on the left side take and they all try to come down the line because backside players are taught to get that penetration and go flat down the line so that they can catch the runner heading to the play side and get as flat as possible down the line. That's that's a technique. And Peterson, knowing that, knew that if he could cut back behind the player who's trying to flatten out down the line, he could get around him and have a huge lane with a one-on-one on a safety that he wouldn't get on the play side if he if he just ran it stuck to the to the play side of the run. The problem was is he used the jump cut. And if he had been able to open up his stride and not use that jump cut immediately after the the um, exchange, he would have worked behind that that defender coming downhill and he would have had a big run. And when I watched that, I thought, wow, this was an example of someone who knew the rule and decided to break it. And it's art, sometimes great art, is taking a rule and breaking that rule in a reasonable way, in a way that you wouldn't expect. But it's creative in how you do it, and it's effective. And it was almost that effective. And one more run I got to bring up because... 
is fantastic too. Is there's a run that he works, I think, off right guard. It's a it's like power play or or a counter play off right guard, and he works through that easily. Gets through the first level, gets to the second level. And he's about to clear the second level, and you got to see in that moment the difference between Adrian Peterson of the Vikings and the Adrian Peterson we've seen over the past three to four years. Okay, the difference between like a player that God created and put it on the field, you know, and a, and a player who basically is a mere mortal, you know, like the difference between like a demigod and a more mortal of football. Okay. And the mere mortal is pretty damn good still. That's the thing is you see him get through that linebacker and he sees a lane. That's like, it's actually, um, behind a block that's being made to a linebacker and he knows that if he can at full speed make the turn and kind of curl underneath that blocker and linebacker and then weave behind the safety in the middle of the field he's essentially going to turn this play into about a 60-70 yard gain for a touchdown he's basically going to carve an S through the remainder of the field in the way that he would weave all the way to his left and then back around to the middle probably. And I've seen him do this several times during his career, including a couple times against the Bears as a Viking. And when you watch him at this moment, he makes the he sticks his foot in the ground and tries to bend it, but he just doesn't have quite the bend at the speed that he's moving to be able to do it. And he veers towards the, the blocker linebacker, but he overshoots it. And he realizes that. So he flattens out another step or two and then turns or and then bends it um, past them and then tries to work around the safety, but he gets caught by a backside linebacker um, on the play. And you could just tell that he knew he his his mind saw what he used to be able to do and he tried to do it and he couldn't do it and he had to amend it because if he did it he would have beaten that backside linebacker because a linebacker would have been still three or four yards behind and by the time uh, Major and Peterson got up got to where the linebacker was Peterson would have been in a straight line to accelerate and that linebacker never would have caught him but on this play he couldn't do that because he had to slow down, readjust, and work across. And the linebacker was already getting up to full speed at that point. So you could you could just imagine Adrian Peterson going back to the bench after that series and telling one of his teammates, like, "Dog, I, you know, five years ago, I would have like I would have basically figure skated through that secondary." for a 70-yard gain. I saw it. I just couldn't hit it, man. I just couldn't hit it. Uh, and it's like, and even maybe even laughing about it with like a mix of like um, humor and disgust because you can imagine somebody being that good, just being like, still being able to see it and seeing it so clearly, but not being able to take advantage of it because you're not quite what you used to be. And that's just a magnificent thing to be as good as he is that he's basically outplaying, you know, he he basically got an opportunity to outproduce Carrion Johnson and DeAndre Swift who are pretty two pretty darn good and promising runners in their own right and he's still getting these opportunities and playing well. So, I just had to bring that up about Adrian Peterson cuz it was flipping fantastic. Okay, Mike Thomas. 
Mike Thomas, not Michael Thomas of the Saints, but Mike Thomas of the Bengals. In my replacements column this week, it's a new column of football guys that I'm doing, if you're unaware. And it's really just brought, something I brought up to Joe Bryant. Um, I used to do a column that I'll probably go back to doing at some point at Football Guys, which was um, which was basically a Friday feature where I recommended other people's work at Football Guys to get people to learn more about what all the Football Guys had to offer with their great content. But, you know, I thought it was a good idea with this particular environment with COVID and the unknowns that we may have. And right now the testing's proving to, to be working well enough that we haven't seen any major cases develop and hopefully we won't knock on wood but uh but in case there are i thought it was worthwhile to late in the week bring up some players who could be helpful if there's sudden scratches you know whether it's a you know whether it's a somebody on the covid list you know late late notice covid list say on wednesday or thursday or maybe it's some players who, who you know, have injuries where they they could be late scratches, and the waiver wire is already bare, and you've got to take chances on players who, you know, who are available on the waiver wire, but people don't know much about. You know, the James Robinsons, the, um, you know, um, a guy like KJ Hill or Michael Thomas or Josh Adams or maybe Josh Jordan Reed this week. You know, even though people know about him, they may not realize that he's back in the league. You know, in some casual leagues, they may not realize that or they've just discounted him because they know that he gets hurt all the time. But for one week, he might end up being really great, you know, and maybe even for more. Mike Thomas is a player that I've been saying for the past two weeks to monitor, and he's been on my list because many, as some of you know, who were subscribers to the RSP. In the past, I had him as a sleeper coming out of Mississippi State, and he was drafted by the L.A. Rams, and he dropped some opportunities early on, and because you know under Jeff Fisher's regime, ended up being the more of a special teams player, and in the Sean McVay um, era, McVay didn't really know much about Thomas because he didn't draft him, and Thomas was still developing, and they used him on special teams. He had success there, and they picked up other receivers and he basically got lost in the mix because again low draft capital not not the coach's pick no investment there moved on but when you look at thomas in cincinnati he was one of the stars of camp and as a result of being one of the stars of camp he also showed some of the best rapport with joe burrow during the summer and burrow apparently routinely targeted him to the point that even the athletics beat writer said that Mike Thomas might be the number three receiver on this team. And you think about T Higgins and the draft capital with T Higgins and how that may all work out and that's fine. And it may very well turn out that way, but AJ green has, you know, has been injured a lot. Hasn't really gotten on track completely yet. I want to take a look at as to why I can't really um, tell you why that is. I know some people said he looks old, um, I don't know yet if I would say that. I thought some of the passes that were targeted to him were fairly difficult. Maybe he would have been able to make some of those plays. Maybe we're overreaching there. I'd have to study it a little more. What I can tell you is that there are some injury-prone players out there. Mike Thomas showed rapport for the past two weeks with Joe Burrow. Burrow's targeted him on third downs. He's targeted him late in halves. He's targeted him late in games. And Mike Thomas has come through. He's run some pretty nice-looking routes. And a player that Mike Thomas reminded me a little bit of was Isaac Bruce in terms of the crispness of his routes, the skill after the catch, the burst that he had, the downfield ability in terms of the vertical game. And 
boy, does he have an amazing catch radius if you give him an opportunity. He He's made some of the most impressive catches I've seen of a prospect in years, too. I mean, like some of that C.D. Lamb kind of stuff that you saw. He could do that even better at times. But he had issues dropping the football at Southern Miss. So his dra- the fact that he had a lower... Um, he was at a lower level of a program and that he had drops, you know, he was a lower draft pick. And then you have that whole draft pick bias thing that that's created that other people call draft capital, but I'll call it draft cap. I'll call it draft capital bias, maybe that way or risk management bias, but he got his chance. And I think that the fact that Joe Burrow keeps looking to him, he's building there. He's gaining some confidence and, um, and I think that he may continue to get some more opportunities. Is he going to become a star? I don't know. That's a, I, the odds are against it. Let's just put it that way. The odds are against it. But he's got the talent to be an NFL starter. So keep an eye on him. Monitor him. If you enjoy just watching players who have a chance to develop and come out of nowhere, he's one of them. So let's go to the final three. Quintez Cephas. Now, I also have another NFL film room out on him that's brand new. And I'd really love for you to take a look at the graphics on that one and Adrian Peterson. There's a great group of guys who are doing some work for me um, of a video crew. And, you know, one of the people who's the contact for that. And, you know, I'm mentioning him specifically not because I don't want to overlook the crew because the crew's doing great work. Um, but Alex Hanowitz is, um, you know, is the contact person that if you're someone who does video content and you're interested in hiring a crew to do you know the graphics and editing for you at a high level trust me when you watch those videos um the bet you are going to see the difference between what my videos look like and what what theirs are i mean like my a good example is i showed them to my wife who usually occasionally listens to podcasts and and she'll occasionally read an article. She's not a football fan, so I don't ask her to, but she she does occasionally because for, for some reason she loves me and decided she wanted to see what I'm up to. But she hasn't seen many of my videos. So we showed I showed her one of mine. I showed them I showed her the one that this production crew did. And uh, you know, and again you can find Alex's email. It's Hanowitz.alex at gmail. You can find it on the Quintes Cephas article. Um you know, and the YouTube site if you want to contact him. But she looked at the at at those at mine and and theirs, and she was like, "Yours is actually pretty good." You know, like you know the production quality isn't bad. You know, um, with some of the ones she said, but yeah, like that's a whole other universe better. That's like network TV better, like in terms of the video quality of what they did and and the editing and all of that. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, she's absolutely right. So if if someone who's unfamiliar with football and really doesn't care about it, other than that she likes to watch players get clotheslined, um, you know, which, you know, doesn't really happen all that often. Uh, my my wife would make, like, um, Jack Tatum. She, I think Jack Tatum would be, like, her favorite player, probably, which I don't know if that's a really good thing. But, um, but anyway... If she sees the difference, I'm sure you will too. So check out the Quintus Cephas one as well as the Adrian Peterson video. I think you'll like both of them. And and Cephas, you, you know, he had 10 targets in that game. He dropped a couple of passes. They were both easily correctable mistakes, kind of welcome to the NFL moments. One of them was because he 
he essentially was a beat late um, on a crossing route because Roquan Smith got a hold of him, and when he fought it off, he lost focus and didn't get his hands up in time. It was on a shorter play. Then there was another route crossing over the middle where he was late to get his hands extended to the ball, and he caught the ball at the latest possible window as opposed to the earliest one, and it made it harder for him to pull it in. And then he ran a route on one play where he broke inside and the rake was supposed to be outside. And so there were three plays that were really on him that weren't good. But he also had a few plays that were very good. He had a, had a, you know, he had a deep in, in cut where he caught the ball very well and found the open space easily. He had a, a play where they threw it back shoulder to him um, with an adjustment against the safety and he made the adjustment extremely well with Matt Stafford. Um, you know, to find that open space. He also ran a really nice route against off-man coverage where he had to get under the football to make the catch and get a first down. Um, so, it, you know, the fact that... And Stafford, you know, went to him in the red zone, went to him deep, tried to get, you know, you know, targeted him frequently. And I, and I don't think that he's going to look at... if As long as Kenny Galladay isn't in the lineup this weekend... I think you'll see him continue to go to Cephas because Cephas will get open and he has confidence in what he did with Cephas early on and give Cephas a chance to to, to kind of overcome some of those little minor learn those minor lessons because there's enough there. So he's another guy you want to monitor for this year. I don't know if he's going to you know, have a great year, but... I think that if Galladay continues to stay out, the chances are greater. And even if he doesn't, if Cephas has a good week this week and they move him to the slot occasionally and have him split time with Amendola or use him as a fourth receiver on occasion, I think he's going to... that These opportunities may give him an additional confidence and give Stafford additional confidence in him. So keep an eye out for that. So let's end this with a look at a couple of college players, Okay. First one that I really want to talk about is I'm going to look at a couple running backs. Puka Williams out of Kansas. He's listed at 5'10, 170. I've heard some good things about him, and I watched him against Indiana State and Texas from last year. And what I noticed about him was, you know, they call him a really shifty back, and there's a lot of exciting, highlight worthy plays with him. And you can see he has, you know, he has some cutback ability. He's someone that. You know, he has really efficient mobility with his hips. He can make jump cuts. Um, you know, he can pull through reaches and wraps, and then he has the speed. And you see him a lot in pistol and shotgun. They use him as a flanker on jet sweeps. He's, you know, he's a guy that could give you kind of some scat back skills. Um, but I felt like, you know, when you watch him, he has that momentum generated power, which means that he really has to get a nice runway to break tackles. I think he can be a player that can be too tentative as a gap runner when it comes to attacking creases at the line of scrimmage, especially if he sees penetration. Um, he doesn't work. He doesn't hit those creases hard. If he sees a defender that might make the crease tight, he tends to look for the cutback or bounce. So he's not as disciplined or as aggressive as he needs to be on those plays. And as a result, he can lose yards that way. As a pass protector, I mean, not only is it because he's light, but he puts himself in danger because of the way that he drops his head to attempt cut blocks at times. 
Um, so, you know, this is a guy that I think, you know, if you can, you can use him in certain situations, he might give you that DeAnthony Thomas type of, you know, scat back opportunity a little bit. Um, you know, he can run certain types of plays, but I think there's a lot that he has to do to, to really become a regular contributor for an NFL team. And, and part of that too is as light-footed as he is, you know, you, you see him having issues with diagnosing run stunts early in the post-snap phase of a run, um, you know, he, and that tentativeness and, you know, he's, he's someone that doesn't always attack the intended creases. So he ends up being a boom bust player with big plays. So as scat backs go, I'm not a huge fan of Puka Williams from what I've seen thus far. It's early. We may see more down the line that may change my mind, but a guy that I think fits the mold of being a good NFL scat back is North Carolina running back, Michael Carter, who's 5'8", 199. I watched him against Clemson and Georgia Tech. I've got um, NC State dialed up for another watch maybe this weekend. He's patient on gap plays. He knows how to set up blocks. He knows how to avoid penetration. He knows how to really hit that the smaller creases and hit them hard, you know. And he also has that good mobility to open up his hips with efficiency um, so that he can make cutbacks or bounce outs. Um, he also is good at reading the, the, the tackle box at the line of scrimmage to know if his cutbacks are possible. Um, you know, sometimes he'll bounce plays unnecessarily, um, you know, but for the most part, I find him to be pretty good with following his blocks and can even find the occasional cutback on gap plays that are really hard to do and know how to anticipate it um, and anticipate those tight creases once again is just something I see repeatedly with his game. Um, he works back to his quarterback as a receiver. Um, you know, I just want to see more consistency with him hitting trap plays up the middle rather than bouncing them upside. He's, I saw him against Clemson where he was mature on one play and then bounced the other for a loss, and he really didn't need to do that. I don't know how fast he is yet. I don't know if he can really hold off cornerbacks or beat them when he gets in the open field. And there's also some plays as a pass protector where I can see him doing good as a blocker. Like when you watch his, his actual skills, he spots the edge pressure. He works across the pocket. He reaches the far side edge. He'll use his hands. He'll square up. Um, he has a low center of gravity. He slides with his feet and, and legs pretty well. He's, you know, he's just got to be a little more mindful of maintaining an upright stance, not overextending his frame and leaning his helmet. Um, you know, so that's important. And I just want to see how often he and his tackle get mixed up with blitzes because there were some times where seemed like he and the tackle were not on the same page of who takes which man. And so that's something that, you know, him being assignment sounds going to be important. So Michael Carter's a guy I want to see, I'm intrigued by, and I want to see more of him. Um, whereas Puka Williams is a guy that I've heard good things about, but so far I'm not as impressed as maybe what the hype is there for him. But one thing that I am impressed with is the audience that I have at the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. I want to thank you guys for the great feedback that I get um, for, um, you know, just the, just the way that you approach 
and have contact with me is just such a huge positive. I, I love getting a chance to do work with you guys and that you're both, you, you know, inquisitive, but at the same time, understanding of my time and, and the kind of the work that I try to put out and, and you're respectful of that on a level that I do appreciate, even though, you know, you're my customer and I try and provide the service I do. It, it just says a lot to me that you all understand that, the best way that I can provide service to you is to continue to put out content in podcast, article, and video form. Um, so, you know, you can find more of that if you're a new listener, um, you know, on iTunes, on, um, you know, what else? I think on Amazon. might be Amazon soon. Spotify, um, Podbean, Stitcher, of course, at Blueberry. Um, and you can find my site, mattwaldmanrsp.com. Find all this content here, at least links to things like the RSP Film Room, Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room. I'd love for you to subscribe to that. Hit the bell and subscribe and, and you know, give me the thumbs up if you like the content that you see there. And certainly a lot of that new stuff is going on. And of course, there's Twitter. If you like me, if you like following my stuff at Twitter, I'm at Matt Waldman. Um, that's my handle there. And uh, I appreciate you guys. I really do. Um, you know, it's been a crazy year, I think, for everybody. And I definitely still appreciate the feedback that you guys gave me, um, you know, earlier this year about, um, you know, all the things going on in society in terms of our race relation issues in this country and where we need to go, where we've, where we've gone, where we need to go, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's not exactly a, I can tell you that, even though I've been doing a lot of content and I'm sure folks are like, yeah, he's feeling better, things are going well. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that um, I really didn't want to play fantasy football this year. I really didn't want to write about fantasy football this year. I didn't want to write about football, period, for a while. Um, and if we didn't have a season, you know, while I think we put on a happy face that we all like that to be the case, I can tell you that... Um, you know, I wanted to have a season because that's how I'm employed. And I'm glad that we have one because I don't want to see other people suffer. Um, you know, there are opportunities not to be able to enjoy something and, and do that. But I can tell you that, um, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to get the joy back for what I do. Um, and it's going to take a while. And so I, I think it's important to remind people of that um, because... You know, it's easy for people to forget what's going on. And I know a lot of people want to forget. They don't want to talk about this right now. And, you know, I understand that. I don't agree, you know, because I have to deal with it every damn day. Um, and to be honest, the way I look at it is if I have to deal with it every damn day, if my wife has to deal with it every damn day, you know what? You should fucking deal with it every damn day until we get this fixed. You know, because it's something that we all have to address. So that's my thoughts unfiltered um, about it. And, uh, you know, again, thank you for allowing me to do that. And I hope you guys have a great weekend. And may all your big calls come true in week two. <laughs>